question the way decisions are taken in complex times? What might be going wrong in the way decisions are made in meetings? I've been observing many senior executive meetings in COVID times and providing feedback, and I found Keith Johnson from Cultivating Leadership had some great insights on this very topic. And I have learned so much from his suggestions that I decided to invite Keith and hear straight from him. Keith is from New Zealand, and he's going to talk to us about this very topic of how do we make decisions in complex times and how do we actually hold those meetings in complex times. For those of you who are new here, this is your host, Deepa Natarajan, that Indian girl from Toulouse in France on Meet My Potential podcast, where we interview thought leaders from around the world to inspire you and to ignite your potential. If you haven't subscribed yet to this channel, please do so now. Keith is the co-author of the book, Simple Habits for Complex Times with Jennifer Gave Perche. Leadership development has been the focus for Keith's PhD. He has explored the capability for complexity required of senior leaders and how this might be enabled. Let's welcome Keith and let's talk to him about complexity and meetings in complexity. Hello, Deepa. So nice to have you here. And where are you calling in from? So I'm calling in from a little village called Paikakariki in New Zealand, which is just north of Welling. That's nice. And I just remember I saw a little window outside your room where you're calling in from. And I could see the sea from there. That's just wonderful. It must be wonderful living by the sea. Yep. And I can look out at the sea at the moment and just this beautiful orange glow, the last of the sunset. Um, because it's, it's winter here or coming on to winter. And so the days are quite short. All right. So I saw your video on your website, Cultivating Leadership, about how do we hold meetings in complex times? And I loved every single advice that you gave there. And yet I thought, wow, there's so much depth to this that I need to get you on, meet my potential podcast and interview you and hear it straight from you. So tell us a little bit, what are some suggestions that people can follow to hold meetings in complex times? Well, I think as leaders, as groups of people, it, meetings, we're in meetings all the time and their meetings are very challenging things and they often frustrate us. Um, and they're challenging because it's a group of people coming together who are all making sense of things differently. It, we sort of talk about being on the same page and you know, getting on the bus and all that and uh, but in, in effect, we all, as humans, make sense of things differently. And as we move into greater complexity, that becomes even more of a challenge because usually in meetings, we've got a choice, particularly as the leader or the facilitator of the meeting, we've got a choice as to, are we trying to converge to kind of drive into what is it we agree on? What's the action we're going to take? How are we going to take this forward? And because we always want and need to be taking action. And in those situations where there's a right answer to be found, where we can manage the variables, we can do the research, we can find the right answer, then it's really valuable to keep pulling us into focus, to converge, to work out what the next action is. But in situations that are complex, and what we mean by complexity is that there are so many variables at play, whether it's biophysical variables or human variables and all these different people with their different ideas and different ways of responding, so many variables that we cannot predict what's going to happen. And so there isn't a right answer to be found, but instead there are patterns and we can look for the patterns and we can then try and nudge the system and explore and experiment and gradually take our way in a direction. We're still taking action, but it's a different kind of action and it requires a different kind of meeting where 
we're diverging more, we're exploring more, and we're not driving to converge as quickly. And so that's a kind of challenge for the people in the meeting. It's also a challenge for the leader. And often you'll have an agenda where there are some things where you can converge, you can make it move things forward very quickly, and there are other things where you want to explore more. And it's useful to be able to be explicit about that. So that was kind of by way of context, and it wasn't quite answering your question. My apologies. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. That is one of the biggest suggestions that you mentioned is not driving to converge quickly. And I work with a lot of executives who like to move ahead fast and take action and want to be agile, and that's important for them. That's right. And your recommendation. Is that they accept that this meeting is going to go slower, and that they need to give some space for divergence? And how do you actually accept that? Well, they're not called executives for nothing. You know, their, their job <laughs> is to execute. You know, to get things done. And so, and they've become successful at being. You know, they've been promoted because they're really good at solving problems. But then they get to the situation where, whether it's organizational culture, or whether it's how do we respond to COVID nineteen. Or you know what's going to happen with the economy, and in all those situations, there isn't a right answer to be found. We can look at the patterns, we can look at how we're going to try and nudge the system. And so, in having our meetings, we want to be able to make sure we've got as many perspectives as we can to bring to bear. We want to be able to, where possible, keep options open and test different options more rather than trying to make a decision. Because usually. We make a decision, we try something, and then it bounces off. And we make another decision, we try it, it bounces off, and so we go on. And so it's not actually inefficient to be keeping options open and trying different things because we're actually reducing the kind of repetition that often happens when we're dealing with complex issues. And so there's a few things that we suggest. Keith, I want to just stop you right here because you mentioned something very important and very critical, and this is exactly what I see, at least in my country here in France, is that when COVID nineteen hit. There were so many changes of decisions. Like first, do we wear masks? Do we don't not wear masks? Do we go out? Do we not go out? Like decisions were changing every other day, and this is exactly what you're mentioning: is allow space for divergence, allow space for different perspectives. Otherwise, we quickly go on to making decisions, and we go on correcting our decisions. In many ways, the COVID nineteen example is an example of kind of chaos, where where you you've got to kind of act first and then work things out as you go along. So I'm not saying don't act, and often you have to make quite crude rules. So you so a lockdown is a very crude device. Mm -hmm. it, it's a crude device that's used to try and hold the situation as stable as possible, reduce the impacts while we work out. What other things we might be able to do while we get our health system organised in a way that's going to reduce the number of ICU beds that are in demand? While we actually get contact tracing up and running, we get testing up and running, and and a whole range of things. So the lockdown is a kind of crude device. It's taking action and then working stuff out as we go along, which is often what happens when we're in what we would call a chaotic situation. And when we're in a complex situation, we can see more of the pattern starting to emerge, and then it's a matter of trying to work out: okay, how do we go with the energy that's in the system to achieve the kinds of outcomes we want, uh, and and how do we try and use these these different patterns to to good effect? And so, when you're meeting and trying to work in complexity, you're not trying to do what. Executives are often think that they're expected to do, which is to be able to predict what's going to happen, to plan for it, and to try and then control things. Those are things that executives are trained to do. It's what you know, MBAs and other things focus on. 
and that's really useful in those situations where there's a right answer to be found. But instead, in complexity, where you don't have the ability to predict, plan, and control, even though you might try, what you need to be doing is saying, what's the direction we want to go in? The direction we want to go in is, it might be, say, to reduce obesity. We don't know exactly all the ways that that might work, all the ways that the community might respond, but we can set up a direction and we can try things out and learn as we go and over time get more and more precise in how we might work on, on an issue like that. That's different from, say, building a bridge where we can be very precise with the engineering, we can be pretty precise about the time frame and the budget. We can be very effective in that situation by having a very clear destination that this bridge is going to be built by November of 2021 and it will be under budget and you know the, the process will be well managed. In a, a world where in the predictable part of our world we can have destinations and we can set milestones to get there. In the unpredictable part of our world all we can do is have a direction and work things out as we go along we end up discussing those kinds of issues in quite different ways and we need to construct those meetings in different ways. Right. So there are two things that I'm hearing here. First suggestion that you mentioned is allow for divergence in meetings. Mm -hmm. And the second suggestion you mentioned was get as many perspectives as possible. And the third suggestion that you're making here is set the direction that is set the compass where you're going and allow, and I imagine like set the compass, set the direction and allow for divergence to take place in that sense of direction. Yes, divergence in complexity, divergence, difference is your friend. Difference, when people disagree in meetings, what we say is we, we suggest that you should be trying to use disagreement to develop, to take ideas forward, to have this range of ideas and to try things out that explore some of these different ideas and to learn as we go. You might converge over time, but you're trying to explore more of those ideas rather than sitting around arguing what's the right answer here, which is the right policy, which is the right idea we're going to follow. It's like, wow, that's great. These people have got four different ideas here. How can we try these out quickly and cheaply and learn something and then take things forward? So I would say disagree to develop. To do that, you it really helps that you can listen well and listening well means I really want to understand what you're saying deeper and this is what I'm hearing and testing that with you and rather than when you say something I leap in and either try and fix the, the issue that you're raising or it, I might in order to reassure you say no, 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 you did that really well, um, it, which is we, we would call that listening to win. Listen, and listening to win and listening to fix tend to be the listening responses we use most often. We can watch this with our children or we can watch this in with our um, partners, spouses, um, the ways in which we conduct these conversations as opposed to, to saying, oh, so you're really concerned about this because of these sorts of reasons and have I really understood the way you're making sense of things? Because <laughs> But only... that takes time, Keith. Well, it does. It, <laughs> I'm, it, I'm it, laughing it, because it, like, I would love love to but you know we're living in this fast-paced world and I walk in and I sometimes observe meetings with some of the board members and then you know executive meetings and like every nobody has time like everybody wants to like they go on these status meetings like very quickly and some quick decisions to be made and then we get into another meeting there's so much to get done 
Right. And and then this reminds me of my conversation with my daughter where I go like, wow, that's a nice piece of drawing. Like, oh, where did you learn that? And I get curious with her. And then I walk into these meetings and I see that that sense of curiosity is completely not there. And, and so what you're demonstrating, I'm hearing, is you, you can do that with your daughter. And, and executives don't have time to do that. But yeah. executives do have time to kind of play verbal tennis. You know, they have time to go where, <laughs> where I say it's A and you say it's B and I say no, it's A and you say it's B. And we can go on like that for some time. And, and in that time, we could have actually said, okay, this is what I'm hearing from you. And you could have said, this is what you, and we could have worked out where we agree, where we disagree, how we might build a platform to go forward, how we might explore those disagreements. We could have done all that in the time that we've been playing this tennis match. And we would actually feel more connected and more productive by doing that. So in a way, it takes time, but it only takes time at the front end. I think overall, it reduces the amount of time that goes into a lot of our engagements. Absolutely. I love that verbal tennis. <laughs> I'm going to use that. So I guess people are holding assumptions. And I'm guessing that one of the assumptions that people are holding is that if I don't go fast, and if I don't make quick decisions right now, then I'm going to lose. What might some of those assumptions be for people to not get curious and not take that time to not play verbal tennis? So there's an assumption in there, which is, I have to move fast in this situation. I have to move fast to make these decisions to get the prime mover advantage. In a circumstance we're in at the moment, with the such uncertainty around the global economy, I suspect there's no prime mover advantage. Um, you know, and so here's this kind of situation where maybe the assumption that we have to move fast, this is a crisis, might be just an assumption that I'm holding. I might turn to the way that you know doctors are trained for working in ER, where they say, you know, don't just do something, stand there. Because, you know, there, there are circumstances when we're kind of in a crisis or when things are very confusing, when the most useful thing we might be able to do is to stop and kind of observe and listen and compare notes on what we're seeing and just trying to figure out what's the new pattern that might be emerging before we leap in and try and take action. And so I think there is there... So, so that's me kind of talking about a specific example. It's a, it's a great one because whenever something is happening, there's a crisis, our tendency is to act rather than just to stop, observe, and look at what patterns might be emerging. And like you rightly said before, like make a distinction between predictable situations and complex ones. And when you're in a complex situation, stop predicting, planning, and controlling. And I imagine you might want to say, Start observing and look for patterns. Start observing. You did. You did. That's great listening. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> um, you, you start observing, looking for patterns. And, and I think, and one of the real strengths, I think, and maybe the, one of the, uh, the, all these things are easy to say and hard to put into practice. They're mm -hmm. simple enough to remember. They're just really hard to do. And in the moment, we often forget them, but we're human and we're, we can forgive ourselves for, you know, and we can try again. Um, if I don't listen to you fully in the beginning of a conversation, I can loop back and say, oh, deeper, I, I think I was actually trying to win or to fix things earlier on. And what I really am, am hearing is this, I can actually go back. We're quite good at recovering things as humans. And I think the thing that is maybe most usable for people in the first instance is 
to think about or to try and observe myself and the assumptions I'm making. When I'm heated up about something, when I'm responding in a particular situation, what is it that I'm assuming here? What am I assuming about the other person? What am I assuming about my own rightness? And how might I be wrong? Can I just ask those two questions? What am I assuming and how might I be wrong? Maybe that I consider things, I consider how the other person's thinking about it or the other people are thinking about it. And in the end, I think, well, no, actually, I've considered that. And, and I think I'm, I've got the right answer here or I'm making the right kind of assumptions. But the act of pausing and raising that question gives me a little bit of space on my own thinking and enables me in giving myself that space to think, ah, do I need to act quickly here? Do I need to consider more? Do I need to get other perspectives? Do I need to act first and then kind of observe things and watch what happens and then maybe go back and change things? I don't know, but it just gives me a little more space. And I think, as you've indicated, one of the real challenges for executives is to give themselves space, space to think, space to listen to other people and space to actually then reflect on what's been happening and before they make their next decision. I'm not saying don't decide, don't act. I think deciding and acting are really important. I just am trying to kind of, in, in running meetings differently, to have meetings that are generative and to create more space for people to combine their ideas and to take things forward. Brilliant. That was just brilliant. Lots of great questions out there to ask yourself. And this is what I loved about your book that you co-authored with Jennifer, where in Simple Habits for Complex Times, where you say, ask yourself the question, where might I be wrong? And then I joined the course with Jennifer last month, and she asked us to do a piece of work and justify why we gave it a certain number. And then right after we gave our justification, she would just ask the question then, how might you be wrong? And that was a very difficult exercise, you know, right after you have told everybody why you're right and explained yourself, you ask this question, how might you be wrong? And it leaves us puzzled because it asks us to get out of ourselves, get out of our vantage points and completely look at ourselves and look at the whole thing from a different perspective. And as you rightly mentioned, we need space to think. We need to give our space self space to observe and think differently. And, and I might also add, and thanks for Jennifer, bringing Jennifer into the story, because she's not living in this village anymore, but you know, she was when we were writing that book, <laughs> um, is this question, how might I be wrong? If we can do that in a way that is compassionate to ourselves, you know, I often kind of come to my wrongness somewhat defensively, angrily and frustrated, you know, but can I actually ask the question, how might I be wrong in a way that is supportive of me and what I'm overall, the overall things I'm trying to do, rather than feeling like it's undermining or that's a threat? And, and, and can I, as a leader, be vulnerable enough and open enough about my uncertainty on some of these things that it actually creates not only space for me, but it creates the space for the people I'm working with to then feel it's okay to raise questions and to challenge? Because as leaders, as we get more senior, one of the risks we face is that more and more people just tell us what they think we want to hear, you know, because it's not safe for them, they feel, to be able to expressing a range of, express a range of views. Can I be a leader who demonstrates that I'm asking myself, how might I be wrong? And I'm kind of confident in that and not afraid. 
Wow, brilliant. I think I would just like to leave this episode with just that question. Ask yourself that question, how might I be wrong? And hold yourself with compassion. And remember that when you do that, and when you are vulnerable, you allow space for others to do exactly the same and therefore allow more perspectives and more discussions to take place. Thank you so much, Keith, for being here with us. And before we actually close this episode, like, what might be one message that you'd like to share with the audience that they can just say, okay, maybe that's something I want to try, or maybe that's a message that I want to keep. What would that be for you? What assumptions am I making here? How might I be wrong? I know that's kind of two, it's two questions, but they, they're, <laughs> they're, 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 they're two sides of the one coin. Let me put it that way. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Keith, you, for being Deepa. here with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, I would love if you could head over to iTunes and please give us a rating there. Thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to talking to you soon in two weeks time. And until then, stay cool.